The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. My name is Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education, bigbeacon.org. And in every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And today, I'm really blessed to have um, my uh, my co-authors and partners in crime and in the writing of a whole new engineer uh, uh, the coming revolution in engineering education. So uh, first, welcome to uh, Catherine uh, Whitney. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the Hello. show. Hello. Good to be here. And Mark Somerville uh, from Olin College. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here. Yeah, so um, so this was the band that was back together back in 2012 when we were working on uh, the writing of this um, on the writing of this book. And, and um uh, Mark, you've been on the show before, and and uh, you're a faculty at Olin College. Uh, a lot of people have heard about Olin from the New York Times and other places, but for those who haven't heard about it, what what should they know about the school? Yeah, I think one of the really interesting things that, that's distinctive about Olin is the fact that Olin was started with this dual mission, right, both to uh, educate uh, students as engineering innovators, so helping helping students to develop, but also that the other part of the Olin mission has to do with transforming engineering education, and we've been we've been working on that since you know the, the school started in 1997, and certainly uh, that was how I got to got to meet you, Dave, and I think the the book is a is a part of that effort as well. Well, in many ways, the the book is responsible for this this radio program and everything that's uh, come after. And Mark, so, so not just to talk about Olin, but uh, what should our listeners know about you and, and your journey into being an education transformer? Well, I think I started out as someone who wasn't necessarily on the path to be an education transformer. I did an awful lot of uh, studying in various venues, went to the University of Texas and Oxford University and MIT and Somewhere along the line, discovered that I was passionate about helping people learn and then had the opportunity to, to join Olin very early in the startup process. So I've had the chance to be part of this educational startup at Olin, and I, it's great to also have the chance to try to be part of a bigger picture of changing engineering education more broadly. Cool. And and Catherine, this is your first time on the show, and um, you're a published book author, but you make a living as a ghostwriter uh, working with others, and that's how Mark and I came to know you. One of the things that we explore on this show is how 
people unleash themselves into into the career that uh, and and path that they take in life. So how how did your schooling and early experiences uh, lead you to become a ghostwriter? Well, um, I've always done writing, but the way I became a ghostwriter was kind of by accident when I had an opportunity to work with a judge on a book he was writing about the uh, criminal justice system. And as part of that process, I sat in the courtroom with him every day and I discovered that I loved the idea of inhabiting other worlds and learning from the ground up and kind of becoming an expert. And then from there, I just went on to kind of become a mini-expert in a wide variety of fields that ultimately landed me uh, to, I wouldn't say become an expert, but to be educated in, in engineering education. Well, and that was, you know, that was one of the fun things in um, in working with you. And, you know, and so you've had many uh, brand name uh, clients and without betraying a, a conf- any confidences, can you tell us about any of your current or recent uh, ghostwriting projects? Well, right now, um, right now I'm actually doing a couple of projects that are, one is in the business world and one is in the, um, the uh, social um, uh, historical world. So uh, just, you know, just kind of continuing uh, to explore a different range um, of, of topics that I haven't investigated before. So it's fun. Cool. Well, and I, you know, sometimes I, when I tell people about, about you, I, you know, I said, you know, so, Catherine's worked with Lee Iacocca and Judge Judy and right. and what's wrong with what's wrong with this picture? Why is she working with um, <laughs> with Mark and Mark and Dave? So um, so anyway, so back you know we got together back in 2012 and and um, uh, we worked on a whole new engineer, the coming revolution in engineering education. And so for our listeners, uh, um, uh, in your own words, what? What's this? What's this book about? How would you describe this book to uh, to our listeners? Well, I think one part of the book, Dave, is is storytelling. It's a it's a book that very much takes a a sort of anecdotal approach to to sharing thoughts about the coming revolution, engineering education, as opposed to a purely sort of data driven approach. And I think that that was an interesting decision that we made in, in putting the book together. And I think one that's really important because of the extent to which often when we talk about engineering education, we don't talk about the people involved and the, their stories. And so I think one part of the book is that it's a book of stories and stories within that domain of, of changing engineering education. So it has the story of Olin and Olin's founding in it. It has the story of iFoundry and all the work that you and other folks at the University of Illinois did. And I think throughout the book, we use stories to, to illustrate the, the points that we're making, which I think makes, makes it probably a, a more interesting book to read, um, certainly for a general audience, than a more sort of research-heavy book, which isn't to say the book is not researched, but it's a book that's meant to be one you can pick up and read and find some interesting things in, as opposed to a book that you sort of have to really know all of your stuff in engineering education in order to get any value out of. Yeah, Catherine. Yeah, I how think would that's you a really good that? insight because I think that if you want to engage people, you tell them a story, and and often when you're when your people talk about engineering, they talk about they talk about it as if it's a technical universe that 
really doesn't have any juice to it. And so it's really a human drama, what's happening with engineering education. That's what I discovered. So I think the storytelling in the book um, is, is essential um, to, you know, the, um, that unleashing that you're talking about in terms of uh, and unleashing the imagination and, and the intellectual, um, bringing people intellectually into the challenge that, that we're proposing. Yeah, and you know, and I'm listening to both of you and kind of thinking in terms of my own thoughts about the book. And and so, Mark, you mentioned the the story of the founding of Olin and some of the stuff that we did at Illinois. And those were for both of us were kind of personal stories. It was um, it was almost like a travel log of um, mm-hmm. you know Alice in Wonderland or you know Dave and Mark in Changeland. And and sometimes the book has taken some heat for that. Um, from various critics that it's like, well, why, why is it, why are we telling it from this personal perspective? But as you were saying, you know, so much of the, the literature on education reform is so dry and people, and, and I love the word that Catherine used, juice, is squeeze the juice out of it and try to make it into this purely cognitive um, approach. You know, if you do these six things, you're going to have an education system that is, is, is super good. And, and, and it seems to me that part of what we figured out in the journey that it that the that the juice was essential and was largely missing in the conversation. You no, know, I think I mean I think one of the interesting things is the extent to which part of the argument we're making in the book is that we need to think about what the stories are that we're telling in engineering education. I mean that the stories that are normally told about engineering education are this is going to be really hard, it's going to hurt. You if you're really good you might survive and and that's a, you know, if you think about the stories that, you know, we've talked about the sort of experience that people have the first day they walk into their calculus class or their engineering physics class where they're told, look to your left, look to your right, two of the three of you aren't going to be here in four years. And I think the sort of reframing of that story that you did at Illinois from look to your left to look to your right, these are the two of you are not going to be here in, in four years to look to your left, look to your right. These are the people who are going to help you succeed in a really challenging but really engaging four-year experience. That reframing, I think, is critical, and we, if we want to change engineering education, we really need to change what the stories are that we tell, and not just what the what the sort of you know facts on the what the sort of numbers are associated with engineering education. Catherine, you you met you t- you told the story of sitting in the back of the in the courtroom. What was your when you <laughs> when you came when you came into our courtroom and on right. on the first day and so forth and and we're we're learning this thing from the ground up. What were some of your you know was it uh, oh oh my god what have I gotten myself into or what was it that what were some of the things that you were thinking about back in those days when we first got together in 2012. Right. Well, when I first visited Olin College, I knew nothing. I was completely ignorant of engineering education, and so that was really my first picture of it. And uh, it was like um, a totally unexpected experience because um, there was so much going on. There was so much uh, collaboration in the classroom, and there was so much excitement. The first class, I think the first class that I sat in on was the one where they were um, uh, doing um, uh, the metal, the process of metals and, and uh, just, you know, just, you know, it was, it was like being in, in an episode of the forensic file, 
you know, it was just very exciting, and the students were excited, and I guess I didn't expect to see that. I, I think I expected to see students, like, sitting over, like, pages of, like, figures and, like, tearing their hair out, and, and it was just, um, you know, it was just a lot more energized than I expected, and these were, and, and many of the students that I met in the early period were freshmen, and I wouldn't have expected to see freshmen so involved in engineering uh, projects, you know. I, you know, I always figured the first couple years of, of school is, is, you know, hitting the books before you get to do anything fun. So, you know, that was a real eye-opener for me. Yeah, and, and Catherine, you also, you did a lot of interviewing um, in those early days. You interviewed faculty, you interviewed uh, administrators, you interviewed students. What um, what were some of your impressions from those first interviews you did? Well, I guess, you know, my biggest impression was, who's the expert here? You know, because, you know, I was interviewing faculty members uh, who had, like, you know, life careers at very high levels um, in education and, and engineering education. And then I was interviewing students, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors, and they their expertise factored in just as much. So, I mean, the you know, I know that you had talked about the fact that, you know, it was a, that the classroom was a collaborative venture and the students had, you know, as much to say as the professors, but I didn't really believe it till I saw it. You know, so, you know, I was, I was listening to, to students articulate their own expertise in terms of, you know, what engineering education meant to them and what the profession meant to them. And it was just, um, it was just fascinating. And and Mark, you know, so when we got together um, on these things, and there were parts of it that were really invigorating, and then there there were parts of it that were were pretty difficult. What what do you remember from from those early days of of our starting to work on the book? Well, I think one of the things that I remember most is is that sort of sense of um, of asking why over and over again to try to dig deeper and deeper. It sort of seems like at each, we would about once a month get to the point of saying, okay, now we think we've got what the core of this is, and then we'd start to think about it and question it and talk about it, and, and at each point we would find that there was more more underneath there, and so eventually we sort of got to that point of talking about the sort of iceberg where the, the sort of top of the iceberg, the stuff that's sticking out of the water is the things that, or the things that you normally talk about in engineering education, sort of pedagogy and, and content. And then there's all this stuff going on underneath that has to do with culture, that has to do with values, and that ultimately have to do with the things that we identify in the book as the, the five pillars, that those things are the things you don't ever talk about, but the things that matter the most. And so that process of, of trying to dig and get down to those fundamentals, I think, was, was both invigorating and difficult. I mean, it was, felt like pulling teeth at times, but at the same time, it was, it was quite satisfying to get to the point of actually feeling like we'd gotten, we'd dug about as deep as we could, and we'd sort of hit bedrock there. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember thinking that we had, you know, we had some 
the the shell and the basic outline of what we wanted, and then thinking on a number of a number of occasions that we really didn't. And and during the writing of the book, there were things that came out, and and we actually we actually ended up uh, going deeper. We've 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 got uh, a, a couple of minutes till we uh, we take a take a break. But Catherine, what what else would you like to add to that? Yeah, well, I you know I you know I've done this a few times, and so you know it. You know, writing a book is, you know, is is like, you know, building a bridge. It's, it, you know, it's like you put the framework together, but the process of actually getting it it complete and problem solving all of the unexpected challenges, you know, it's a process. And so, you know, in a way, I think that our ability to stay open to the changes and discoveries that we made along the way is really what made the book really good as opposed to just ordinary. You know, that that was my observation. Which may yeah. to be a, ahead, a testament to your patience, uh, Catherine. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it was it it was it, it was challenging to be patient and and to wait. You know, some of it seemed like it should be there and we should be able to talk about it. But actually, I think there was a point at which we really um, we there was a shift in our language that actually allowed us to go deeper and and that that shift in language has has um, has turned out to be really important. Um, so I, th- I think we'll we'll take a break and come back and talk about that and what were some of the key lessons in the writing of the book and and what were some of those uh, those deeper things that were hard to talk about. This is uh, Big Beacon Radio with uh, special guests uh, Mark Somerville and Catherine Whitney. And when we come back, we'll talk about those deeper lessons. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-472. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with your host, Dave Goldberg, and, and guests, Catherine Whitney and Mark Somerville. And we're talking about... Uh, 
a whole new engineer, the coming revolution in engineering education. And if you want to grab a copy or take a look at the table of contents, you can go on wholenewengineer.org. And it's available in um, really a beautiful hardcover and uh, Kindle and other ebook versions. So, uh, you know, in the last segment, we were kind of talking about the initial coming together and, and starting to work on the book. And, and I've worked on books before, and I thought, okay, I'll, I'll just write down what I know. And, but every book project, you find out a lot about uh, what you didn't know. And then, uh, and then you also find out a lot about what you'd like to know as part of the project. And I think writing a book is, is this, this larger learning process. So what were some of the key things that, that you guys learned um, from the experience of uh, working on the book? Catherine, why don't you take a stab at that? Yeah, you know, I, it, it really struck me. In the book, we talk about the five pillars of transformation, and we're talking about it from the standpoint of education. But it really, it really also applies in other areas, and I thought it applied in the book, too. It's not what, just what you know cognitively. It's what you experience. And this happened to us in writing the book as well. I mean, some of the pillars mm-hmm. that really jump out at me are... Openness, we talked about that earlier, about just remain, staying open to um, new cha- changes and new ideas and, and even, you know, very new ideas. Um, and, and trust was a big issue with us, I think, as well. And as we experienced ourselves really um, embracing those pillars in the process, I think it really is what transformed the process. So, you know, it's kind of like we were seeing the ideas in the book come to life in our own process. Does that make sense? Well, that's really nice. Yeah, and what the five pillars, uh, what we had joy, trust, courage, openness, and and connection as the central values or central pillars of, of, you know, modern 21st century engineering education, Mark. Yeah, I, I, certainly I had some personal learnings that happened during the course of writing the book. I think one thing that was, was challenging for me is the extent to which I think in writing a book, even more than in, in say, writing an article, you're, you're putting a point of view out there that, um, that you're really taking hold of and taking ownership of. And, and as someone who you know, always wants to couch things with a little bit of hesitation and we're not quite mm-hmm. sure, that was, that was challenging for me, but I think a really um, good experience. I guess the other thing that I really learned and very much learned, I think, from, from working with you, Catherine, was the sort of power of, of argument through anecdote as opposed to argument through data. And, you know, I think Dave and I talked a lot about how as engineers we're sort of trained to, you know, look at the data, look at the data, show me the graph. And this book was one that where we really had to break that a little bit and say, no, look at the story. And so learning to learning to do that and seeing how how effective that can be was was real learning for experience for me too. Yeah, and I well, of course, you know, part of bringing Catherine into the process was knowing that cognitively. But I think the what you're saying, Mark, right now is deeper than that. I think we knew it cognitively going in that we needed good storytelling, but the the power of it and the way in which it changed change the book and how it landed on people and the kinds of controversial conversations that are being had uh, about it now um, it just wouldn't 
it wouldn't have had the impact had we written another research tome with chapter and verse of of data and 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 results it, it wouldn't have had the effect that it seems to have had but it it it's it's um i think you know that power i guess I, you know i've seen that else i mean i've seen that in in my coaching practice that that it that that story is essentially the way people capture complexity in their lives they mm-hmm. they manage complexity by telling a story or by or by changing a story but story is central to human experience and and if you're and if you're not in story then you're sort of not connecting with human experience i think is i mean that's a pretty strong way of saying it but i it yep. seems to me that that was one of the lessons for me from the book mm. so um a lot of books on education focus on you know, we we've content curriculum and pedagogy. The book t- takes a different tack and 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 went deeper into things like emotion and and culture. So what's you know from your perspectives, what's that about? I guess I, I've got one perspective on that that comes from particularly from engineering uh, because I think as engineers we tend to frame things through a sort of um, technical solution lens, right? We often talk about re-engineering, engineering education, and when you think about re-engineering, engineering education, what that means is you're going to change what the sort of mechanisms are. It's this very kind of, you know, factory assembly line mechanistic perspective on what education is. And in that type of framework, you would say, okay, well, the mechanism is content, curriculum, and pedagogy. And I think that if you sort of broaden the definition of what engineering is to one that starts to include people, then you need to actually broaden the definition of how you think about education to include people. And if you think about content curriculum and pedagogy, people aren't really in there, right? People are emotional creatures. They're, they exist in, in relation to each other within a culture. And so if you don't think about how can we, what is the culture that exists? What are the, what are the emotional responses that engineering education uh, engenders? Are those desirable? And if they're not desirable, how can we change the culture? How can we change the, the situation for people? I, I think you don't get very far. We, we talked a lot about this sort of idea that um, culture can be an immune system for, for change. And so when people talk about changing pedagogy or talk about changing curriculum, and they don't talk about changing what the culture is, that change that they make might exist for a year or two or three years, but the likelihood that it will actually survive long-term is low because the sort of underlying cultural immune system will, will eat it up. So I think this sort of idea that you need to go deeper and you need to deal with cultural issues and with emotional issues I think is really core to making real change happen, and it really requires that we actually step back and think about engineering with more of a sort of people-centered view as opposed to one that's just about those sort of you know, technologies of teaching. Yeah, right. You know, when I did interviews um, with students and even with faculty, we, there was a phrase that we used in the book, the, the emotional rescue of engineering education. And when I would use terms like that in my interviews with them, people would get viscerally excited. And it was just like um, touching a place in them that they really <laughs> that they really didn't know was there when talking about engineering education. And you know, it said a lot to me about, you know, how, you know, how you really can transform education and get people um, engaged in what they're doing, not just 
not just cognitively, intellectually engaged, but on that emotional level. It was so unexpected to them to hear the words emotional and engineering in the same sentence. Well, and... And I think that actually we were talking in the last segment about, well, the the difficulty that we had in talking. And it really wasn't until I think it, we had the language of joy from from previous conversations. We had the language of um, openness and collaboration, things like that. I think the, the words that helped actually helped us go deeper, um, there's a the story in the book about um, – uh, giving a talk in Singapore and and a, a young woman asking the question, um, "How do you learn the courage to be present as a leader?" And I think it was I think it was the words trust and courage that really busted busted it open for us. Um, and the, when we when we use those words and say, "Oh, my, it, it, we were struggling actually. We were struggling with the language of intrinsic motivation. When we saw some of the results we saw at Olin, we saw some of the results we saw at iFoundry. We use the language of intrinsic motivation, which is largely cognitive language, although it, it contains motivational terms. But it's still it's still pretty bare bones emotionally, and 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 it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to talk about what we were seeing in iFoundry and and at Olin. And when we started using words like trust and courage, that a a young person is trusted and they have the courage to take initiative, that's really when it it shifted, I think, shifted for me. And then once we started using those words, they were the right words in the book. And and as we go around the world, it's it's the right, those are the right words to talk to audiences about what you were just saying, Catherine, the, this, this kind of visceral response about how cool this can be. Yep. Yeah, I tell you, I'm always fascinated by how, how sort of strongly that introduction of emotion into engineering education lands. It's sort of like you're, you're suddenly introducing water to these people that have been in the desert for, for you know, <laughs> yeah, months. Exactly. And, and particularly, you know, as, we, as we've traveled around the world, Dave, and, you know, for example, in, we were recently in Brazil and, and talking to folks there and how much introducing that language into, into the conversation suddenly shifts what's possible in really exciting ways. Well, and it's and two that, that we're doing this in engineering. It's like so engineering is like the one of the least likely places where you'd expect language like this to be used. And you just mentioned uh, Brazil. There are differences in culture um, regarding emotion. So it's it's so interesting to go, um, for example, to Singapore. And Singapore, on some measures, is the least emotional country on the planet, and yet. It works there. It works the same language works there with engineers and and um, uh, in in a country that's not considered emotional, it it still works. So we're ta- we're we're talking about something that varies culture by culture, but it's something fundamental about um, about being a human being that we're we're talking about here. That and something fundamental about education of whole human beings. Yep. Yeah. So the book is, uh, you know, the subtitle is "The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education." What's what's this revolution about in your, in your minds? Well, in some ways, I well, think I, it's what you I, just said, Dave. I mean, okay. the sort of idea of education of whole human beings is really what what this is about, right? I mean, up until recently, in talking about engineering education, we've 
thought about, you know, we're, we're producing engineers as if we're producing widgets. And the, the book is really arguing that what we should be thinking about is how can we help these young people to develop in ways that sort of fully realize their potential and that allow them to be sort of whole whole people as they as they go out into the world and deal with what's going to be some pretty challenging problems in this coming century. Yeah. Catherine? Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about in the book is that this isn't just tick-the-box change. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we talk a lot about all the different efforts for reform in engineering education going way back. Um, and, you know, there have been so many and major, major efforts. And, um, and yet they've yielded little results. So it opens up the question of, you know, what's, what's been missing in, in the, um, the efforts so far, which, you know, and, and of course one of the issues is that they focus on curriculum and pedagogy instead of, you know, looking beyond that. But, you know, this revolution, I mean, the use of the word revolution was deliberate to indicate that this is something that really transcends other efforts. And in what ways is this, you know, so we're talking about it, the title has engineering education, and it is, is in your minds, is it for engineering alone, or um, is it universals for other majors, other professions, uh, graduate school, K-12, what, what is, are the same ideas, in, in what ways do the same ideas carry over to other, other places in the educational spectrum? You know, when we started talking about the book, Dave, I I remember us having a conversation about the extent to which the book was about engineering education versus about education. And we ultimately decided that although we thought the ideas were very much applicable to education full stop, that we should frame it within the context of engineering education, sort of as as we said, stick to our knitting, right? Because the, the extent to which we sort of know engineering education pretty well, uh, and maybe don't know those other domains as well. But certainly, as, as I've talked to people outside of engineering education, it seems pretty clear that these are these are ideas that are that are very general. It's really about education. It's about how do we create a system that allows people to to realize their full potential. And and it happens to you know it happens that that our experience with it is within engineering education. And as you observed earlier, you know if you can make it there, you'll make it anywhere. Since engineering yeah. education is certainly a fairly uh, challenging spot to start, but I, I think the ideas are fundamental to what it is to be human and to that extent apply to, to other majors, to K-12, to professional education. Yeah, and you know, I, you know, I would take that a step further, and I would say that what, one of the things that I learned is that engineering education, the STEM concepts, is like a portal, and you introduce engineering to K-12, through and they get so excited you know, and and more and more these days, it seems one of the ways that schools in the element at the elementary level are engaging students is by introducing them to STEM concepts. Mm. And 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 that and 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 studies have shown that 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 excitement then continues into the classroom and other areas. So, you know, I think that there may be something special about engineering that in itself does, performs that sort of global mission. All right. Well, hang on to that thought. And so uh, this is uh, Big Beacon Radio and with uh, special guests Mark Somerville and Catherine Whitney. And 
in the next segment, we're going to explore how we can actually make real changes in engineering and other kinds of education uh, using some of the lessons of the book. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. So welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with your host, Dave Goldberg, and... and uh, Special guests, Mark Somerville and Catherine Whitney. So get the coaching and training you need to transform higher education at www.3joy.com. So in the last segment, um, we, were, we were talking about the, the coming revolution and how this has kind of changed the way we think. Um, you know, one of the things that the book does is it, it, it talks about how to change and it talks about about higher education and why it's been hard to um, make effective change in higher education. But uh, from your perspectives, why is real change in higher education so difficult? Catherine, I'm going to let you take that first just because I'm really interested to hear what your perspective is. As, as someone who's sort of coming into this space from the outside, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I think that well, I mean one one reason is that, you know the institutional bureaucracy of it. You know, I mean, you know, you know, this is you know this is you know practically an ancient. Well, it is an ancient. These are ancient systems, but uh, you know, if you just take the the last century alone, I mean, they've pretty much been codified into you know, the way things are done and everybody, there's a lot of turf warfare and, you know, there, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of barriers to change. We talk about the, the NIMBY problem, not in my backyard. You know, it's like, it's hard to get change going. And I think one of the exciting 
things, and maybe I'm jumping ahead, but, you know, one of the exciting things about Olin College and iFoundry is that you took, you, you know, you took it in a, in a small laboratory and then build out from there, which, you know, seems like a pretty uh, amazing breakthrough to me because you can't just take on the institutions and mass. Yeah. Mark? Yeah, I, guess, I mean, I think one thing that's, I mean, you know, it's, Catherine mentioned that uh, it's ancient, right? And you sort of point out, you know, the University of Bologna started in 1088, right? So that uh, higher ed has been around sort of in a form not terribly different from its current form for about a thousand years now. So uh, there's something there that seems to be fairly resistant to change. And I think part of what it is it has to do with the sort of underlying culture of, of higher education and the extent to which we often don't question that very much. So I'm, I was sort of interested in, in writing the book when we would talk about the use of language in in higher ed. And one of the things you'll hear professors talk about all the time is their teaching load, right? You never hear professors talk about their research load. Uh, and that says something about what we believe is important and what we believe is not important within higher ed. But we we never question that. We never question what the sort of cultural assumptions are. So I think part of what makes change so hard is just that it's a, it's a deeply embedded cultural system. It's a system that has a set of incentives that work in a particular way, a system that has a set of built-in um, assumptions and associated with those various cultural artifacts in the form of language, in the form of regulations, in the form of buildings, and all of those things work together to resist change. And so change is hard because it's a system that's pretty resistant, and if you don't think about the system first and you just try to change something, you're going to have a hard time. Well, and you know the this notion of the these deep assumptions when you and we question many of those assumptions and and sometimes people look at us like we're insane. I remember writing a white paper about change in engineering education back in the nineties, and I remember I won't mention names, but I showed it to my dean, and I was questioning some of the assumptions of the university I was at and and he just looked at me like I was insane. Like, uh, how how can how can you ask that question? And it's that kind of thing that we I think that you're talking about, Mark. That we yeah, exactly. we it's like the water. It's it's the air that we breathe, and we we don't even think we don't even think to ask questions about it. And the and as you're saying, that's embedded in the language that we use. The language that we use reinforces that over and over and over again so that it's 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 as natural as as night and day and 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 we can't and 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 as a result we can't even talk about it un, un, until we sort of do something else and so um i th- i think that's right i think that 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 is part of you know and so Catherine mentioned um bureaucratic systems i guess and you know that one of the things is that we assume that we can make change using the existing bureaucracy so you've got things like departments and you've got deans and you've got uh, curriculum committees and we assume that we can use those mechanisms to make to make these transformative change but though, of course those those mechanisms are designed to make small changes that are consistent with the underlying mm-hmm. culture they're not designed to make transformative change yeah, right, and I think one of the, one of the um, things that we spend a lot of time talking about, one of the most exciting sections of the book, I think, is the acknowledgement that we're talking about, as like Mark said, we're talking about culture. We're not just talking about institutions. We're talking about a culture. And I think you have to begin by acknowledging that. Mark? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I think, um, you know, as, as Catherine pointed out, it's, 
Actually, let's go on, Dave. I'm sorry. I've got too much. There's too much I want to say, and I want to get to some of the other topics. Uh, no, no worries. <laughs> and well, I, you know, so that we've got culture on the table, and I think one of the things that we, uh, in one of the chapters in the book, we we used uh, we, we plugged into Ed Shine's uh, theories of organizational culture, and I think that was really an important moment for us to to uh, to use to use that model. And and so, what is it about? cultural models that actually helps you make real change. I mean, it's, it's nice to have a model, but how does that, how does that help? How does having access to a model and being able to talk about culture actually help you be able to change it? Well, I think a big part of it actually is is simple awareness, right? And that is as soon as you actually are able to label something and say, oh, uh, look, there is this underlying assumption here, suddenly the conversation can shift. And it's, it's interesting that we as academics often don't don't question those underlying assumptions when, in fact, intellectually, you'd expect academics to maybe be the first people to question some of those underlying assumptions. I think a second thing that it allows you to do is because you've got that model for culture, it allows you to think more intentionally about what some of the changes are that you can make that might actually propagate down to changing assumptions or ways that you might change assumptions and, and then what the artifacts are that we would be associated with those. So, Dave, you, you've talked a lot about the importance of institutional artifacts yeah. in creating change. And so when you started iFoundry, you were very intentional in creating language, very intentional in creating the sort of various kinds of institutional artifacts that said this thing is new, this thing is different, the assumptions are different here. And those choices were choices that, very much, I think we're made with a, with a culture change model in mind. It's not easy to change culture, but it's certainly a whole lot easier to, easier if you at least have a model for it and can think about what your change might look like from a cultural perspective. Well, and you you know talking about that, the, you use the word awareness, or you can use the word noticing, and and I think one of the things, a key thing, as you're pointing out is just getting people to be aware or to notice that there's something else on the table. And, and you mentioned things at iFoundry, but, um, you know, the artifact in, uh, you know, some, sometimes the artifacts you create are attacking artifacts. And so I, you know, the language that I used of, uh, math science death march as a way to label in a negative way, the kind of thing that we were doing, which Prior to that, everyone says, "Well, that's as natural as the day is long." But as soon as you call some, you call this weed out process of of getting rid of thirty to sixty percent of your students a death march. People become aware of it. Now they might be uncomfortable with that, but but now at least we're at least we're talking about it. Whereas before, it's just considered something that we do. Yes, of course, we get rid of thirty to sixty percent of our students on an annual basis. Yeah, we work really hard to get them in to STEM courses, and then on their on their their first semester at school, we get rid of them in in physics, chemistry, and calculus classes. Yeah, it's it's uh, it is it's. In many ways, I think this is part of why that we get as much of an emotional response to the book as we do is that it, you know, when you start to question some of these underlying assumptions, there are two responses people can have. One is a highly defensive one because you're questioning something that is, is sort of subliminal for them that they're not ready to, to question. And the other is to say, wow, I haven't, yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. Well, how could we, how could we address that? How could we change? One and you know this to tie in with this notion of noticing one of the one of the technologies of trust as as we call them was executive coaching. There's this 
been this revolution in the C-suite anyways and, and high levels of corporations that everyone gets a coach and, and coaches are great listeners and questioners and they're great at they're, I think of them as noticing or awareness amplifiers for their clients, but the the ideas of coaching have become um, have become central in some of the things that that we're we're talking about. And I guess you know I'm curious uh, from to hear from the both of you in what ways you think that's important and how and and what the mechanisms are for helping that spread. You know, I saw two applications in the book. I mean, one is, was to take the co- the concept of coaching and that model into the classroom mm-hmm. and ask what it would look like if professors were in had a coaching hat on in their interactions with students. And I thought that was I thought that was a pretty exciting image. But I also thought it had applications in terms of just talking about change in general. You know, there are exercises that you can do that you can take people through, you know, their their artifacts, their notions, you know, their ideas, and, and sort of open new doors. And, you know, I think that, you know, when we're talking about methodologies for, methodologies for change, I think that was one that really stood out as, as having a lot of value. Mark? Yeah, I think a couple of things popped to mind for me. One is the sort of extent to which we talk about in education. We talk about sort of moving from the sage on the stage to the guide on the side. That's kind of a pretty common um, piece of language that starts to move in the direction of saying students are responsible for their own learning and the role of a faculty member is to, to facilitate that learning. And I think the coach is sort of one, one step further, as we sort of point out in the book. A, a guide knows exactly where you're going. And a coach is someone who helps you get better, but helps you get better in a direction that that actually makes sense to you. And to the extent that really what matters ultimately in education is producing people or producing, helping people to develop in ways where they can be self-directed learners throughout their lifetime, coaching and the kinds of skills of coaching, of getting people to, to notice things about themselves, of getting people to reflect on their own behaviors, of getting people to identify what they should do next, those types of things matter enormously. And so I think the sort of applicability of coaching skills to, to student development, I think, are, are really strong. I've started to use the language of, you know, so the old model, the the Cold War model was fear and obedience-based learning, and we've shifted to trust and courage-based learning, mm-hmm. to, and, and, and that we're, we're, we're unleashing the, you know, the next Steve Jobs uh, to be able to go in directions of of their choosing. We've we've got a few minutes left, and and um, I guess I, you know. So in terms of some of the other ideas of 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 the technologies of trust and how this occurs, what you know, what things should be said that we haven't said, uh, and fairly quickly, we're we're going to come to a close. Well, the tr- I think the trust thing raises for me a lot of the intrinsic motivation issues that we talk about in the book, and I know we sort of acknowledged earlier that the, that the intrinsic motivation material we don't feel like gets quite deep enough, but at the same time, from a sort of operationalizing perspective, I think a lot of the sort of core ideas in yes. self-determination theory and you know some of Dan, this thing that Dan Pinker has written about in the book Drive, those are really important ideas when it comes to trying to provide an environment where students can really 
be motivated intrinsically and pursue things in in a way that's driven by passion instead of driven by fear. So I think that's that's a pretty important technology from my perspective and certainly one that influences my teaching quite a bit. Catherine? Yeah, you know, when I talk to students, you know, the trust issue was a big it was a big one for them and you know, I heard some pretty moving stories which we we write about in the book of students discovering that you know, not only were they being trusted, but they were able to give trust. So it was a back and forth in the in the classroom setting that you know allowed them to produce um, you know su- surprising results, that, you know unexpected results uh, in their minds. Great. Mark, so if people uh, want to get in touch with you, they can contact you through um, olin.edu and, and um, write to your email. Catherine, if they need a good ghost, how do they get in touch with you? Sure. You know, they can email me at katherinewhitney at mac.com, or I'm on Twitter at kathwitt. Awesome. Well, appreciate. Uh, just so grateful that you both could come on. We could uh, get the band back together and 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 talk about <laughs> this special experience that we shared. Um, like to uh, thank Catherine Whitney and and Mark Somerville for for joining us. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with uh, Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our guests and and join us next week, same time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.